You're listening to The Myth Pilgrim, and I am Brother Lawrence of the Missionaries of God's Love. At its heart, the spiritual journey is a delightful and perilous adventure, just like the myths and fairy tales we love. This podcast is also a journey, learning from both wizards and saints, enchanted princesses and inner demons. Together, we'll discover how the great symbols of myth and fairy tale can guide us on our spiritual journey to God. Hello and welcome to episode 5 of The Myth Pilgrim. It is wonderful to have you along once again and a special warm welcome for you if this is your first time joining us. Today, we dive into our second classical fairy tale exploration, The Little Mermaid, which like Beauty and the Beast, which we explored in episode 1, was adapted by Disney during its golden era, its renaissance era of the late 80s and early 90s, which made up an important part of my childhood and maybe some of yours too. Now, I'm admittedly not very creative with a lot of my episode titles, but I hope today's particularly perks your curiosity. I've called this episode The Little Mermaid and Old Testament Tragedy. Right, what on earth does The Little Mermaid have to do with the Old Testament? And what is this tragedy business he speaks of? Like ancient Greek tragedy or a series of unfortunate events? All will be unraveled soon, and my prayer and hope today is that this episode will be as much enlightening as it is moving, and among many things, make us realise that we are all actually mermaids. Yes, even us blokes too. So most of us probably grew up with the Disney version of The Little Mermaid and sang along with Ariel and Sebastian under the sea, under the sea. And while we'll certainly be referring to this version and maybe even paying homage to some scenes, I want to actually base today's podcast on the original fairy tale written by Danish author Hans Christian Andersen, published in 1837. And while the Disney retelling works as a narrative in its own right, the original story actually contains some profound differences that will serve to illustrate why a tale about fish-tailed people has actually such richly developed Christian themes. So, without further delay, here's the original story of The Little Mermaid in summary. The great sea king of the ocean has six daughters, the youngest of which is our Little Mermaid, who doesn't actually have a name except the Little Mermaid. In this great underwater realm, mermaids are only allowed to the ocean surface when they reach the age of 15, for breaking the water surface is actually sort of like an initiation rite. Now, the Little Mermaid yearns to explore the world of humans more than her older sisters, but until she reaches the age of 15, her only consolation is a beautiful marble statue of a boy, one that had sunken from a shipwreck. She treasures this statue, decorates it, and longs to be part of his world. <laughs> she finally turns 15, and her first excited trip to the surface brings her near a great sailing ship at dusk, where a merry party is taking place. But her gaze soon becomes fixed on a handsome young prince who looks remarkably like the prized marble statue. Mm. Anyway, like the Disney, there's a sudden storm and the ship begins to sink. Everyone falls overboard and they're in great peril, but the little mermaid has eyes only for her prince. She rushes to save him from drowning, and she does. Still unconscious, she takes him back to shore safely, and suddenly some young women from a nearby convent spot him on a beach, and not wanting to be seen, the little mermaid darts away behind some rocks and watches from a distance. The women revive the prince, and he smiles at them, but doesn't notice the little mermaid at all. She returns to the sea, sad and lonely, and hugs her statue. I made that last bit up. Over the next few days, she keeps on going to the surface, and falls more in love with the world above, and the prince that lives there. 
One day she asked her wise grandmother whether men would live forever if they didn't drown. Her grandmother replies that unlike mermaids who live for 300 years and then die, men have shorter lifespans but possess an immortal soul. Long after their bodies have turned to clay, she explains, their souls rise through thin air to beautiful places unknown which we shall never see. The Little Mermaid then asks what a mermaid must do to also possess an immortal soul, and Grandmother explains that she can only get one if she earns the love of a mortal man, a love that is so pure that he'd be willing to share eternity with her. Only then, Grandmother says, his soul would dwell in your body, and you will share in the happiness of mankind. He would give you a soul and yet keep his own. Let's briefly pause the story at this point to make a few comments. You can probably already see some parallels at work in the story of the Little Mermaid and the story of Christianity. For each of us plays the part of the Little Mermaid in real life. Just as the Little Mermaid was born from below, but yearns for a life above, so too is mankind born from below on earth, but yearns for a life above in heaven. The initiation of the mermaid breaking the surface of the water speaks to me of baptism where a new type of life is initiated from the world below to the world above. Now, when I say words like up above and the world above, I'm obviously not talking about space, like physical space necessarily. I'm using the word up above in the same sense that Jesus does in John chapter 3 when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, one cannot see the kingdom of God. For Christians today don't believe the kingdom of heaven is a geographical place per se. Rather, we believe it is a reality, a, a real reality, if you like, a higher reality, in which the love of God, his laws, and his promises are fully realized. So in this story, I also love the symbolic meaning of the marble statue too. It speaks to me of the incomplete images of God we all possess, images found in our poems, in our art, in our songs, and in our stories. For the ancient Israelites... The mermaid's marble statue would be akin to things like prophecies and laws that were given to them. They pointed them and directed their hearts towards God, but at the same time were not God and could never satisfy their longing for Him. One last thought before we return to the story. The conversation the mermaid has with her grandmother is quite profound. When asked what she might do to gain immortal life, Grandmother explains that it would only be possible if a man from above was willing to love her for all eternity and to share his soul with her. Now, yes, this is very much a Christ parallel. Because like the Little Mermaid, humanity does not gain immortality. First of all, humanity does not have immortality and certainly does not gain one by her own desires and efforts alone. Rather, for humanity to gain eternal life, it is necessary for Christ, the one from above, to share with us his eternal soul. Just as the eternal love of the prince is key to gain the mermaid's immortality, so it goes for the eternal love of the prince of peace to gain ours. So let's now return to the story. So the little mermaid is still with grandmother, wondering now how she can possibly get her beloved prince to love her and gain an immortal soul. But Grandmother explains that her fishtail would be considered ugly on land, and no one could possibly love her. It was then that the Little Mermaid resolves within herself to get herself a pair of legs. So Ariel, I mean Little Mermaid, goes to visit the Sea Witch, who alone has the power to make her a magic potion and to give her legs. 
the domain of the witch is ugly and riddled with images of death, but the mermaid travels through it, so desperate is she to find a way up. Surprisingly, the sea witch actually agrees to the little mermaid's request on a number of conditions. Firstly, she must realise that the potion is irreversible. Once she becomes a human, she can never again be a mermaid and never again see her family. Secondly, the little mermaid must give the sea witch her beautiful voice and resign herself to being a mute human girl. And thirdly, if the prince happens to fall in love with another woman, no, the morning after their wedding, the little mermaid will simply dissolve into sea foam. These are pretty stiff conditions, <laughs> but so eager was the little mermaid's desire for her prince that she agrees to do all this. The witch to make sure, makes her the potion, and the now mute little mermaid quietly swims by her kingdom one last time and says goodbye to everyone while they sleep. She then swims to the ocean surface near the prince's palace, takes the potion, and is painfully transformed into a human. She awakens to find her prince over her, who immediately takes her in. He is quite taken by her, because she constantly reminds him of this certain woman who had pulled him out of the sea during a shipwreck some time ago. Of course, the little mermaid is mute now and cannot tell him that she is that woman. The prince lets her stay in the palace and grows increasingly fond of her and calls her his silent one, his silent child. And all seems to be going rather well in terms of building a relationship between him and the little mermaid. But then, the prince's family arrange for him to meet some faraway princess to marry, who of course we discover looks exactly like the little mermaid, and the prince is convinced that she is the one that rescued him from the water. He falls for her and they set out to get married on a big ship. Naturally, our poor mermaid is devastated, for she knew that the morning after the wedding, she would dissolve into the foam of the sea, lost forever. Greatly saddened, the mermaid sits outside on the ship's deck, waiting her fate at dawn. But then, the mermaid's sisters appear to her in the sea. They've had their beautiful long hair cut and explain that it was the price they paid the sea witch in order to rescue their little sister. They then produce a dagger from the sea witch and explain that if the little mermaid were to drive the dagger into the prince's heart as he slept that night, she could turn back into a mermaid and return to the sea. So the little mermaid is left with a terrible decision. Would she kill the man she loves and save her own life, or do nothing and turn into sea foam when the dawn arrived? As she gazes at her beloved prince sleeping peacefully by his wife, her heart could not allow her to do the deed. She lovingly kisses the prince's forehead and throws the dagger out the window into the sea. And with the first rays of dawn, the little mermaid herself jumps into the water. And just as the sea witch had foretold, the little mermaid's body silently dissolves into the foam of the sea. Quite a poignant ending to the story, isn't it? We will return to the story's epilogue soon enough, but at this point, you might be wondering how this later section of the story speaks of the Christian spiritual journey. After all, isn't the Little Mermaid a little bit unhealthily infatuated with the prince and pretty much sells her soul to the devil in order to win his love and gain immortality? 
Well, I propose that we might have more in common with the Little Mermaid than we first think. For in the spiritual journey, the greatest temptation we have is to try and earn the love of God by our own efforts. To think we can achieve immortality through our own means, or through any crafty means suggested by the enemy, the devil, is precisely the temptation that our first parents fell for. And the entire story of the Old Testament is pretty much a story of Israel trying to reach God this way. They work out excessive laws and raise up mighty kings and perform endless sacrifices in the temple. Far from keeping the natural law that God has stipulated for them from the beginning, they, like the Little Mermaid, compromised their identity and practiced idolatry and syncretism with pagan religions. Infused with this so-called Old Testament spirituality, the story of ancient Israel looks tragic just like that of The Little Mermaid. At this point, I want you to imagine an alternative second half to The Little Mermaid story. What if, knowing the mermaid's longing for his love and immortality, it was the prince who comes down to her in the ocean? What if he had always intended to come to her from the very beginning, and was indeed the one who gave her the marble statue of himself, instead of the mermaid having to compromise her natural form? What if it was the prince who had to compromise his natural form? What if it was the prince from on high who shuns his glory, his dignity and his status so as to descend into her world and become a mermaid? Or, no, wait, or should I say merman? <laughs> Male mermaid? Merman? <laughs> what if, instead of the mermaid dying in pursuit of eternal life, it was the prince who dies so that she could share his eternal life? This would indeed be a strange turn of events, you might say, and quite surreal even for a fairy tale. Yet the scandal of such a story is precisely the story we Christians celebrate. For the scandal of a human prince becoming a mermaid is the scandal of the Prince of Peace becoming a man. And yet the incarnation of God into our world through Jesus was precisely what was needed to break the curse of Old Testament spirituality. Indeed, it is grace, that unearned, undeserved love of God that is the real potion to guarantee us eternal life. If you're enjoying this episode of The Myth Pilgrim so far, please subscribe to it so you can stay up to date with all the latest episodes of our journey. Do you also consider sharing this podcast with your friends so that we can grow the fellowship of The Myth Pilgrim and together unveil the profound truths of God hidden in our myths and fairy tales. You know, the original tale of the Little Mermaid doesn't actually end with her body turned to sea foam. The last few paragraphs are too beautiful to simply pass over, so here it is. As soon as the morning sun breaks, the Little Mermaid is surprised to see these beautiful musical spirits floating above her. They introduce themselves as daughters of the air and tell the little mermaid that they honour the loyalty and purity of her love. When she renounced the sea witch's evil dagger and chose to accept her fate rather than to kill the prince, her spirit was rendered pure and now able to become like theirs. The daughters of the air then go on to explain that they go about doing good deeds for the world such as bringing in fresh breezes for sick sailors. By doing these good things, they explain, this is the way that we shall rise to the kingdom of God after 300 years have passed. Filled with a new hope, the foam of the little mermaid is then transformed into a beautiful daughter of the air. Floating in the sky high above, 
she gazes back lovingly upon the prince's ship and sees her prince and his new bride on deck, looking for her. She goes to them as a gentle spirit, kisses the bride on her forehead and smiles upon the prince. Then she rises up with the other daughters of the air to the rose-red clouds that sail on high. there you have it. What do you make of that? I found the ending both mysterious and satisfying at the same time. Of course, I'll never actually know what Hans Christian Andersen had in mind when he came up with the ending, but here are some thoughts to leave with you. The daughters of the air honour the pure love of the mermaid. Rather than using the dagger of the sea witch and continue to disrupt the natural order of things, the mermaid chooses to accept her fate instead. Her humility undoes the disorder of her previous actions and restores something of the dignity she had thrown away to the sea witch. Likewise, when we are humbled before the love of God and accept our weak and sinful selves as we really are, His grace is able to restore us and elevate us in a way that we could never conceive of. Like the little mermaid, our soul can become truly free to love as we were made to love and in doing so, have the horizons of eternal life open before us once again. So there we have it, the original story of The Little Mermaid. Hmm. It was actually lovely for me to rediscover it too for myself. I was quite surprised when I was putting this episode together how my emotions drifted in different directions from sadness to delight and frustration and joy and then sadness and then joy again. If you get a chance, have a read or reread the story yourself. and Maybe read it to a child, a young child for the first time and see their reaction to the ending. It would be very interesting to know. The practical pilgrim exercise I have for you today is a reflection question or a series of questions that I invite you to bring into prayer. This could be something you might want to write down or journal, uh, for it's something to really explore and might take some time to do so. The question is this, how is the sea witch at work in my life today? What unnecessary price am I paying to earn the love of God, a love that is already so freely given? And lastly, could I just be still and trust that God has already taken the initiative to feel the longings of my heart? And that's it. I really hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Little Mermaid and do please share this episode with friends and family if you feel it can nourish them too. Just a reminder that a new episode of The Myth Pilgrim will be released fortnightly on a Wednesday morning. This fortnightly release will be the standard length of time between each episode, except on occasion when I squeeze in a special release episode in between, normally to explore a theme or an idea that isn't necessarily storyline-based like today's was. And yeah, if you aren't already doing so, please follow the Myth Pilgrim Facebook page to keep in touch with all the latest episodes and updates. That's it for now, I reckon. Time to say goodbye. Until next time, dear pilgrims, journey on, take care, and God bless.